1: A lot can
2: happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher. And this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I have a soft spot for the format of old radio shows. It's something we're going to be talking about possibly in season two of the podcast, and one of my favorites is suspense. I bet you can tell what that's about. Uh The biggest issue I have listening to them, though, uh, like a lot of media in the past, is that it's full of things we just don't do anymore, or we don't say things that way anymore. Of course, they are full of racist caricatures and sexism, that is to be expected, and some stories are worse than others. And then I went on a deep dive to listen to all of the episodes of Suspense in sequence, And the biggest shock was how many of the mysteries involved, they're crazy, they've gone mad, madness can never be treated and will lead you to your death and the downfall of everyone you love. And for a long time in media, that's how mental health issues and spectrum disorders have been portrayed. It's not particularly sensitive. It's not accurate. Uh, Think about how many prestige dramas or textbook thrillers use it as a plot device or a character quirk. Well, let me ask you guys, do you think there is any media out there that is accurate to a mental health experience or even compassionate towards
3: it? Sure. Yeah, I think that that's it's possible. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I do think to me, I think the thing is, is when people tackle it personally, when people tackle it head on, even biographically, I think it can be so... Either heavy-handed or there's a temptation to make it into more metaphor than reality. So I think it can be pretty tough. But I find, at least personally, that that movies, like especially comedies, which we're pretty much getting into today, uh, can deal with it uh, as an aspect of a story very well. Uh, we were kind of talking about favorite ones. And one of my favorites is uh, Richard Iade's film, Submarine. It's Mm -hmm. like a coming-of-age movie, but it's also about depression. I think The Skeleton Twins is also very good for that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and and even like weirdly a movie like Honey Boy, uh, which is very deeply about mental health, I think still is kind of about other stuff, and mental health is just an aspect of it. And I think that those are the movies that do it best for me.
4: Well, if there's anything, I think the reality is it's going to be very recent because, you know, the era of me kind of coming of age and growing up with films like Girl Interrupted were very, I think, poorly done and inaccurate and um, drama driven and and Oscar Beatty. And those films tend to really set the depiction of spectrum disorders and mental health issues Back, I think a long time if I the one that came to my mind and I, I really haven't thought this through is the one that affected me most was probably the TV show Fleabag mm-hmm. just where it's so cerebral and it's so inside her head and it's not necessarily like Cam is saying it's not necessarily about Mental health, although everything that motivates her, whether it's sex addiction or grief, the death of her best friend, the loss of her mother, like she is definitely going through the throes of multiple probably mental health crises. You know, that's a very recent one that I think has had a lot of influence probably on films and television and all media Mm -hmm. to come. There's a lot of stuff happening
2: in podcasting right now that I really like for nonfiction podcasts like uh, Hilarious World of Depression or uh, Terrible Thanks for Asking, but also in audio dramas, which I love. There's one specific one. It's a horror podcast called The Magnus Archives. I don't want to spoil it too much. It's awesome if you just dive in and let it unfold. But it's this world where there's fears are these big powers, and then underneath the fears, they have these kind of avatars that create chaos one of those big fears is this concept of the lonely Mm. in that you are by yourself and you Mm. can't touch other people and other people can't touch you emotionally or physically. And when I heard this, I was like, oh, someone gets how I feel when I'm depressed. And uh, it was a really revelatory, happy sort of feeling. And I think that's what I'm excited about is this idea that we're now talking about mental health as if it's not just, it's one thing. This is what depression looks like. This is what anxiety looks like. It's very much showing it as a spectrum and that it's a very nuanced sort of thing. And that's going to be represented in the films that we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. It is not
4: a good sign that I'm tearing up. <laughs> <right>.
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> i sorry. think. Yeah,
3: yeah.
4: <laughs>
1: that should
3: be a fun no, But I know what you mean. I, another one I thought about as like a good one, but it's like hard to pin down is Synecdoche New York, which I think is like, yes, yeah. It's like, yeah, again, it's like, it's just about, it's like a big metaphor about the feeling of like a lack of control and depression. I think a lot of the good ones, because I mean, also like Melancholia is a great depression movie, but it doesn't end oh, well. Jesus.
2: <laughs> but I think that's what's so fascinating about 2007 is that we were starting to get a handle on mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. And we were starting to be like, OK, yes. we can look at this in different ways where it doesn't have to be a prestige. It doesn't have to be a thriller. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. Yes, it's it's a yeah. challenge to interact socially. And these are movies about social interaction. But they're also funny and warm and charming and lovely, which is why we picked these two movies today, and I'm so glad we did. <laughs> this movie, the first movie we're going to talk about today, like Alicia's friend Hemnet, which who is passing around the DVDs as their calling card of um, Eyes of Laura Mars, this is my calling card movie. I have <laughs> made people sit down and watch this so that we could be friends. Mm. It's called Eagle versus Shark. I saw it in the theaters multiple times. I still quote it. I own the DVD and the digital. And it's a look at grief, depression, trauma, unrequited attraction, and spectrum disorders, all stuff we were talking about, but it's also really, really, really funny. Uh, And it was written and directed by one of my favorite filmmakers, Taika Waititi, a name you might recognize from, hey, the Marvel Universe now. He's kind of a big deal. Uh, And it also is the first introduction to a lot of his buddies that would then proceed to pop up all over North American cinema. I will not take it personally if you guys do not love this movie as much as I do. Uh, I'm sure this is a very like love it or hate it sort of one. I think both of the movies we picked for this segment are... And uh, mm-hmm. critics sure as yeah, heck didn't I was care say. <laughs> for this one. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, critics didn't Kim, love what it. what do you
2: think of Eagle versus Shark? Please, please, our friendship rides on this.
3: <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's a very funny movie. I think, yeah, the, just uh, <laughs> it, it's coming at a time, uh, which I will talk a bit about, uh, where there was kind of two huge uh, Sundance hits, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, which has a lot in common with this, and Napoleon Dynamite. So it's kind of inevitably linked to Napoleon Dynamite because it also is dealing with sort of social outsiders who are weirdos Um, but the difference is it uh, quite a harder (laughs) napoleon dynamite is a lot more lovable than uh these uh weirdos it's a little harder to get into but kind of by the end of it i enjoy it uh I, i to be fair i don't have any problems with napoleon dynamite but i think i maybe like it a little more just because it's more of an exploration of why these characters are the way they are Whereas I think Napoleon Dynamite is more just kind of presenting these characters and putting them uh, in a situation.
2: Napoleon Dynamite's a world where everything is yes, weird. Like sure. you're just in a weird zone. Whereas this one, it's grounded in reality, but there's just everything slightly more To be heightened.
3: fair, I have friends from Ohio, which I think is where Napoleon Dynamite is set, who would say that uh, <laughs> it's just a very accurate depiction of Ohio. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but and, and that's kind oh of the interesting God. thing about Eagle vs. Shark is it, it ties in all this stuff. I don't even think that I would necessarily... F- First and foremost, call it a mental health movie. But also at the same time, it's like an, an it's a film that's dealing with various mm-hmm. indigenous issues without seeming to be much of an indigenous film either. Mm-hmm. Um,
4: I think if Napoleon, if Napoleon Dynamite is an Ohio film, which I've never heard of or thought of, but it makes perfect sense to me, this is definitely very New Zealand.
3: Yeah. And I mean, that's when you hear Taika Waititi talk about it, that is kind of his, his main thrust beyond everything else is to try to represent what he sees as New Zealand humor as like a very kind of subtle New Zealand humor, which he thought hadn't really gone out to the rest of the world yet. And, uh, working with Lauren Horsley on this characters, he, he thought that this was a great way to deliver that kind of humor.
4: I love her so much watching. I, I want more of her. She doesn't do too much film work after this. She does a lot of stage, from my understanding. She's a predominantly yeah. stage actress. I fell in love with her so quickly, she, especially her role as this. Um, she works at a burger joint, which I think was based on a real kind of burger joint that Taika Waititi frequented um, that are only known to New Zealand. Or maybe it was a, it was a chicken it was a chicken restaurant, I think. OK, we haven't done this yet. So I just want to do a quick plot summary. Um, as you mentioned, Lauren
2: Horsley plays a character called Lily who works at a burger joint. Joint, and she has a massive crush on this character, Jared, played by Jemaine Clement, who talks a big game about how cool and accomplished he is, but um, he's a real jerk to Lily and the people around him, and he's not as good at things as he may say he is, but he and Lily end up in a kind of one-sided romantic relationship. Uh, she follows him back to his hometown where he's going to confront his childhood bully in a fight that he's been training for, and while Lily is there, she meets his family and covers a bunch of the lies he's told her, and grows out of this blind attraction and naivete that she was kind of carrying around with her. And he gets a little bit of a wake-up call and a shock, too. This movie really
4: works because Lauren Horsley's character of Lily is just so empathetic. Just, oh gosh, she's so earnest and so sweet and so unliked by everyone around her except for her lovely brother and um, both of their parents have passed so they're all they really have is each other and uh, that is probably the best part of this film is that strong relationship. And
2: they don't ever let it get them down and that's the thing you
4: can't help but
2: love about the Lauren Horsley character is no matter how many terrible things happen to her and terrible <laughs> things happen and she's not Mm-mm. stupid, she just keeps going and she's like because that's what you got to do, you just keep going and that's just so inspirational to
4: see. Yeah, she goes yeah. through the motions like she's she suffers grief throughout the film and the realization that the person that she has a crush on which is is an asshole. Like we yes. and we've all, yes. you know, <laughs> in high school or even adulthood, we've all worshiped and had crushes on these these people that turn out to be really horrible when they figure out that they can treat you any way that they want and you probably will not leave. And so this sounds very grim, but with Taika Waititi's quirkiness, I think it plays very, very well. And I found myself really relating to it, even though it's, like, very uh, much stuck in this kind of fantasy world of, like, there's stop-motion animation at certain points. There's a music video at certain points. It's very much if you're a fan of Flight of the Concords, which, my God, am I a fan of Flight of the Conchords. Yep. This and Taika Waititi, of course, directed a couple episodes per season of that and helped develop it, develop it I think. You know, yep. this, this is a good film for you.
2: It's basically simultaneously produced with Flight of the Conchords, yeah. for my understanding. They were going back and forth. So let's go back to Taika Waititi himself, because I don't think a lot of people know his journey and that he was uh, Oscar nominated very early in his career.
3: What you need to know. Let's go. <laughs> let's go back. Uh, <laughs> New Zealand was born out of volcanic flames. No. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, then there the were n- hobbits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the New Zealand film industry is, is kind of a unique one. It's very interesting. I think something notable with this movie is that the really the first uh, Maori film written and directed by Maori people was only in 1987. So think that this is about 20 years after that. New Zealand film was going through a big boom at the time. Uh, Of course, partially thanks to uh, Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was a canny investment by Peter Jackson making everything shot in his home country and with crews so suddenly there was all this money and all these uh, very talented crews all of a sudden and also uh, a big interest in uh, Maori stories thanks to Nikki Caro's Whale Rider mm-hmm. uh, which right. featured a lot of uh, big actors some of the actors you see here like Rachel House I love he her. Uh, was a short filmmaker he was a comedian he had a comedy comedy troupe that was quite successful, uh, involved in various things. Uh, he started making short films.
2: Can we just say that it was called Humor Beast, which delights me? <laughs> and sure. it was with Jemaine Clarence. I also
3: feel like... <laughs> It had a hundred different names. It seems like (laughs) I can't tell if he was in a bunch of different things or just one troop that kept changing They're very
2: creative people, Cam. Uh, I get it.
3: (laughs) Yes. Yes. He uh, ended up teaming up with uh, Ainsley Gardner, who's a Maori producer. uh, And she eventually teamed up with uh, her cousin, who is actor Cliff Curtis, who a lot of people might know from Once Were Warriors and various American action movies. He kind of came over with Lee Tomari in the 90s. And they uh, wanted to produce more indigenous stories. She read his scripts and really loved them. They ended up uh, producing two uh, very big uh, shorts together, uh, Two Cars, One Night and Tama 2. Tama 2 won Sundance. Uh, and he was Oscar nominated for Two Cars, One Night, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. Yeah, that's I? the one. Okay, so uh, those were two kind of huge, huge shorts
2: uh, when he was nominated for the Oscars, this was one of the first years that they were actually panning the audience for, like, the Oscar moments where they, like, cut to people in the audience. You'd, like You know, you do a high Huge five mistake. or, like, a smile. Huge or, mistake hey. on the Oscars
4: yeah. part. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Tyka thought it would be hilarious if he could get everybody together in his section and all of them pretend to be asleep. And it seemed like everybody was on board.
0: <laughs> I thought they were serious. I thought they were into it. And they I was the only one who did it. <laughs> But I realised, I was looking at the screen and I was like, oh, they're not doing it. No, it's doing it. And it's it's getting closer to me. And I was like, I'm not, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I don't And I did it.
4: Which, this this is Taika Waititi in 2000. So the film is from 2004. The Academy Awards ceremony is 2005. Like, this is a long time ago. This is 15 years ago. Now we all, like, he's he's so omnipresent. Yeah, now you would
3: expect him to be asleep. <laughs> yeah, and, like, he's
4: so, you exactly. know, he's like a heartthrob. <laughs> but this is not the Taika Waititi of 2005. So it, it would have been, um. Think, I think the producers of the Oscars were quite cantankerous. And, and it, apparently, Becky, you told me that New Zealand was, like, slapping him on the wrist. Like, <laughs> how dare you? He got a big yeah. slap on the yeah. wrist from New Zealand because they were
2: like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, like, our chance on the huge, world stage and you did this. Yeah, so it was it. It actually, uh, from what I understand, may or may not have affected some of his opportunities and funding for doing that.
3: Yeah. Well, listen, he showed them by winning an <laughs> yeah. Oscar. And I, I have to say,
4: so. um, like, it, I watched Two Cars one night, actually yesterday, and it's it's beautiful. It's black and white. It's, uh, mm-hmm. if you are a fan of his films, the two that I would really, or if you're not, and you we ha- were you, looking for something outside of the Marvel Universe or what we do in the shadows, um, Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People, you can't go wrong. And. Mm-hmm. Those are films where you see, like in his short Two Cars One Night, he directs Children... And people on the spectrum in a way that yeah. is like so wonderful. Uh, I really love this short. You can see it online. And then the next year, Tamatu is, I don't think people would realize, but it's it's a World War um, it's a World War II film. Mm. So it's about a battalion of Maori soldiers that fought in World War II. And I saw it when TIFF presented their indigenous, uh, one of the largest indigenous filmmaking retrospectives up to that point in 2013. And they included all of Taika's shorts and Tamatu. It was such a theatrical film. It was it was incredible. So as much as maybe he didn't get as many opportunities after pissing off the Academy Awards <laughs> in all of New Zealand, he still was churning out these shorts up until the point of Eagle versus Shark in two thousand and seven that were pretty wildly successful. Would
2: Tamatu be in, like an indication that he was capable of doing a Marvel movie? Because you kind of look at his stuff and yes. he's got like a lot of indie comedies, very quirky, very small. So Tamatu would be like, yeah, yeah, this guy can handle a bigger a bigger set piece.
4: Yeah, he filmed it in a like a recently imploded Wellington factory or something like department store. I can't remember. So he made that look like the rubble of world war ii in europe um i believe it was europe i god it's been so long since i've seen it and it's not super available it's been a solid seven or eight years but mm-hmm. uh yeah there's special effects there's you know it's it's about but it's also like very interpersonal drama about you know the shared culture of these maori soldiers that no one gives credit to in world war ii histories um i think we feel similar to that with with our canadian history in, in world war One and world war ii but uh Yeah, I would say that that's definitely an indication that he was, you know, this very short film, I believe is like 10 or 12 minutes, able to handle, was about to handle 20 years later, these incredibly high budget films. Getting to go to Sundance a number of times and see his films at Sundance where he was like the hottest filmmaker, but still the public hadn't caught on yet. Uh, what is some of the happiest memories of my life. It's like being at the premiere of Hump for the Wilder People with Sam Neill and Taika and his child actor. And it was just like, first of all, the most hilarious Q&A you could ever imagine, but also just a very magical experience. And then seeing where he is now is just like, well, it all makes sense. And it makes sense mm-hmm. when you watch Eagle vs. Shark. I watch this and I see yeah. it as a debut, feature debut, I see it. I absolutely see it revisiting this film. Because like you, I saw this early when it came out and I... Absolutely loved it. I have a little bit more hesitation today, just slightly, with how it deals with the Jimmy and Clement character. Agreed. But uh, I, I think this is a wonderful film.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, too, when you talk about these shorts and, like, kind of his uh, the interest in him is that Boy, as you said, is very close to Two Cars <sighs> One Night. And it's, and it's really it. a feature adaptation of Two Cars One Night. And he yes. was working on it, but nobody was really that interested in it. So yeah. that's why they switched over to Eagle vs. Shark. To come between them because it kind of hits more like i say that napoleon dynamite tone mm-hmm. and then the year before was the foot fist way by jody hill which is kind mm-hmm. of the same sort of tonally uh thing and it also there's interestingly just like a movement of these sort of non-rom-com things you know like uh, me you and everyone we know and wrist right. cutters and stuff like that like uh these indie sort of responses to the glossy 90s rom-com. So it's interesting that he chose, yeah, not chose, kind of was chosen for him. The only path forward was this more unusual film rather than the one that was tackling indigenous issues more head on.
4: More people went to see Boy upon its premiere, which I believe Boy is like 2009. Then they went and saw Jurassic Park in 1992. Like, and it still holds a lot of records in the New Zealand box office. Uh, yeah, he,
3: he's still, I believe, the highest grossing director.
4: I would hope so. Uh,
2: yeah. One of the things I like so much about him, though, is that he really does take these character actors along with him. So mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, a David Bowie kicking open the door for Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and being mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm famous. Mm-hmm. Now you guys are famous, too. And he writes parts for them, and they're just so much fun, and they're so lovely. So in this one, you get Rachel House. Oh, I love her so much. She's so phenomenal. adore her. She's so funny. She has that giant smile. Uh, and in this one, she is playing um, Jermaine Clement's characters, Sister, who the biggest asshole who is so <laughs> obsessed with um, multi level marketing schemes, and so every yes. time Lauren mm-hmm. and every time she walks in, they have a new multi level marketing scheme that they're mm-hmm. trying to sell her. So, like, they're standing mm-hmm. there with knives and smiling, <laughs> they're wearing these yeah. like amazing tracksuits.
4: She's, she's the cut cone knife woman of New Zealand, or like Mary Kay, or in the, yeah, the tracksuits are probably the best. Where you know, their business selling tracksuits door to door from the 90s didn't take off, so mm-hmm. she just keeps offloading them on poor lord personally but they're 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 very i mean today those tracksuits would be oh yeah very Everyone coveted this this fashion has come back <laughs> I, I will say just talking about the tracksuits and all the people that he's you know brought up through the new zealand um film industry i love this film for its level of detail and mm-hmm. i think becky you mentioned this too and i was just i wrote down some of the things that were in the background i know you have a couple but like when he goes, I think it's when it's his apartment where he has his costume party where he dresses up as a shark. Or sorry, he dresses up as an eagle and Lauren Horse's character dresses up as shark. That's why it's eagle versus shark. Um, there's a dog, dog's playing poker blanket hung up like a tapestry that I just think is I just I wanna know where it came from if Tyka like found it, if it's his, like, as I know it was populated with a lot of, like, actual props from their lives, Uh, and it's, I just love that level of detail. It's one
2: of the best introductions to a character I think I've ever seen, because there's a sex scene where instead of cutting to the curtains, they pan around his room for, like, 15 seconds, and then it's (laughs) over. But it's just such an incredible concept of, this is how you explain who this person is and what they love. Um, You know, he makes very inappropriate candles as one of his hobbies, and, uh, like, he's just such a fascinating human being who is a jerk, but it does make some excuses for why he is the way he is. He just hasn't processed it as well as Lauren Horsley's character
4: yeah. has. He's in a state of arrested development, which I think someone and he's in a state of grief as well. His yeah. older brother has um, committed suicide, played a number by of Taika years Waititi, earlier. who's meant to be this yeah. perfect character. <laughs> and and when, we, when we say played by Taika Waititi, it's done very cleverly, where he's never. In the film's um, world, he's only in the film's world through photographs, like family photographs, which I can't imagine how fun were to stage. And then um, his father keeps watching this video of uh, his deceased son winning a a marathon. So he's in like archival video and and photo frames. And that said, it doesn't appear elsewhere. And it's... uh, a very gentle nod, which I think is done quite well.
2: Uh, I think one of the things I also loved about this, because I remember very distinctly when I saw this in 2007, the audience going almost silent, and this is a spoiler, (laughs) go watch the movie, um, of when he's uh, confronting his bully and he discovers that his bully is actually in a wheelchair. He was in an accident and he is now a uh, a paraplegic. And um, instead, and he apologizes to the Jermaine Clement character and says, look, I'm sorry I did this to you and I'm sorry I made you feel this way. And then there's like this pause, and in a normal North American movie, you'd be like, okay, this is the feel-good moment where he realizes what this yes. is. He attacks him with, <laughs> with nunchucks. nunchucks.
3: <laughs> and also <laughs> and arguably, <the> <laughs> arguably get his, gets his ass kicked <laughs> by <laughs> the guy in the wheelchair, even yeah. without his yeah. legs. That guy beats yeah. him up and pretty then, good. I yeah.
2: just remember the audience being dead silent for like 10 yeah. seconds after that happened, totally unsure how
4: to process it, and then yeah. just killing themselves, laughing, right? And you're just like, what happened? That's New New Zealand humor. If I had to, like, say, like, what is the essence? It's that inappropriateness, (laughs) that lack of sentimentality, (laughs) and that just... Cutthroatness—it doesn't a word. Ability to be so cutthroat, and it's comedy, which you do see. I think in *Fight of the Concord*s, and Mm -hmm. you've seen what we do in *The Shadows*. You know, this is a this is a film. We should say Jermaine Clement's character is also a father, which is a very Mm. interesting component. And whatever this child that they hired to play his daughter. Is the cutest kid
3: I've ever seen. She's
4: got the little Miss Sunshine vibe. Did did you see that
3: they, it was written as a man, and then he loved that little girl so much, he just swapped it. Because he was like, she is too good. But yeah, there's, when he talks about the, the like New Zealand humor, He's definitely like he says. It's the super weirdly subtle stuff. So I think he like he was very obsessed with Lily, for instance, being a completely repulsive character. They apparently the best anecdote they have is they got her to go in character through Park City during a Sundance, and he said I that people stories, parted yeah. like the Red Sea. Because <laughs> she, was, she was so <laughs> no. off putting. Okay,
4: she's really pretty. So Luanne <laughs> yeah. Parsley is very very attractive. Like, very intelligent. This is also Taika Waititi's partner, romantic partner at the time, we should say. Like, I, I do want to say, like, she's, she's, it's such a, a credit to the film and to Taika and to even Jemaine Clement in how they treat her character. Cause that is, that would have taken a lot of work to make her that unattractive and unappealing. Cause she's a, I think, a very lovely mm-hmm. and an appealing person. I, I want to say. But she it, yeah, been, yeah. Park City is a weird place where unless and, you are super attractive yeah. and like wearing the most expensive Canada goose jacket, which I guess wasn't around in 2007, you are ignored, such as yeah, myself. And so. I mean, I'll,
3: I will also say that he part of her, her character that he said is was developed is that she will always treat people nice and kind and be good mm-hmm. to them and people are always going to be shit to that's her repulsive at yeah, sundance. Yeah, that's repulsive yeah. that's not yeah. what you
4: want at sundance no. you be-
2: <laughs> this also has one of the most ingenious save the cat moments at the very beginning i think i've ever seen so save the cat for people who aren't sure is a technical term for like you have to have someone do something good at the beginning so that you know they're the hero and then you follow them mm-hmm. you save the cat out of the tree whatever this one is you immediately understand how lonely she is because it's her talking into the mirror proposing a uh, a date to herself about being being mm-hmm. her own boyfriend and she's just so happy in that moment and it is so endearing and so lovely that you're like yeah Ugh. I'm in 100% on board with this human being she's so wonderful It's also it's also heartbreaking it's exactly <laughs> it rides that line so beautifully of being so sad yeah. and so endearing and so wonderful simultaneously again this is not a movie everybody's going to love some people are going to watch this I'm going to get added and being like I, f- I don't I get feel it. like
4: we can turn them the I feel like people who maybe didn't have seen this and didn't love it, I hope that they might review this. I love that you love this film so much, Becky.
1: Yeah. Cuz
2: it's one of those movies I really want more people to see even if they hate it. Yes,
4: it's just that was apparent.
2: It's just <laughs> it such great. an unusual little treasure, yeah. little gem that's just got so much in it. Um and I yeah. just have such respect as you said earlier Alicia for the details um of like the consistency of so many things. So like in the background uh, of Jared's apartment there's a little note that says you owe $257 stop calling samoa um, exclamation yeah, point. I don't know what that means. The, I love it. I love it. The the Oh, I guess um, like he's called his, Samoa his, and yeah. Roommates.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. And the guy, uh, I think the guy the that bully he wants to fight in Samoa. Is in Samoa. Yeah.
4: Yeah. You're right.
2: I mean, we talked about how the critics weren't totally sure how they felt about this one because it's it's pretty freaking weird. But our next one was more critically acclaimed. In fact, it got nominated for an Oscar for writing. Um, and it was a year that was stacked for uh, writing noms for women. And so Nancy Oliver was researching an article for a magazine and she stumbled upon RealDoll.com and her brain wheels got turning about who would order an anatomically correct sex doll. And so instead of making a movie about a perverted killer or a gross-out comedy about how weird that was, which, let's face it, is the direction most people would have gone, Nancy Oliver asked a bunch of different questions. Uh, Alicia,
4: you love this. Like, I love Eagle versus Shark. Let's talk Lars and the Real Girl. Yeah, I I saw this when it came out, and I I loved it then. But I have to say, in prepping this podcast episode, I was very concerned that a rewatch would make it sort of lesser in my eyes. I wasn't sure that this film had aged well in 13 years. Um, And for me, anyway, and I don't know if Cam feels this way or you do, Becky, it actually has gotten better. And I I don't entirely understand how, but... um, I loved rewatching this film. I loved it so, so much. Um, Nancy Oliver, people who are interested in her work, she would be very well known for having written episodes of um, Six Feet Under. And if there were a tone that I would say this film really strikes, it is is a Six Feet Under kind of tone, which is probably why I love it so much. It is about, Ryan Gosling plays a loner who lives on the property of his brother. Well, his, because it's formerly his parents' property. He lives in a garage. He has very few friends, but he's a functional. I don't want to, like, give a term. He might be on the spectrum. He might be suffering depression. It might be both. Um, but he he's functional. He goes to work. He, you know, he he functions. But he does see that his brother, whose wife is pregnant, is moving on with his life, and he is not. So, and everyone in the town, they live in a, it's supposed to be Minnesota, right? I think it's Wisconsin. Wisconsin. yep, Wisconsin. Spoiler alert, it's definitely like King City, Alora, Alton. It's all around Ontario. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's meant to be like in a very like, kind of isolated, very cold, wintry town. So, you know, townspeople just stick together and they they only they get married and you have kids and that's that's your life. And he hasn't done that. And everyone always keeps asking, like, when are you going to start dating? Everyone you know, seems trying to so sa- obsessed with his dating life. <laughs> yes. Every scene. Yeah, they're because like, Did you meet he's young and attractive and, and hasn't dated. And so that's really alarming for people. And I think If he lived in a city, it wouldn't be, but it is a circumstance of his location. And so he just shows up with a sex doll, and it's one of the anatomically correct sex dolls. They were called real dolls, which was a real thing. Nancy Oliver, um, the screenwriter, found the website in 2002 and was fascinated by how customizable and detailed, very expensive, we're talking thousands of dollars for these dolls. And I think most of us probably remember when these kind of came up on the market, and they all had backstories, you know, like, you know, she's a secretary by day going to school at night and just wants to have a good time. Like there was like a full like rundown of who, who they were. And she, or he orders one named Bianca and Bianca shows up and he tells his brother and sister that, you know, he's got a new girlfriend, but you know, she's, she's, um, in a wheelchair. She doesn't talk a lot. Um, English is her second language. She's a missionary. And then lo and behold, he wheels her in and it's, it's the sex doll. And so clearly he's having a mental health crisis, but the town, to their credit, the town, his brother and sister-in-law and the whole town decide that he needs this. And and there's a doctor played by Patricia Clarkson, who's both a psychologist and the family doctor, who says, like, we have to help him through this. And ostracizing him or committing him, which is actually discussed very early on, is not necessarily going to help him. Understanding Will and Eventually, Bianca becomes a fully realized member of her community, and I we'll, we're probably in this episode going to talk about her as though she's a real person, and that's how she was treated on set. Um, it's very and very fascinating how much thought went into this. It's amazing. We'll talk about that in a bit, but um, it, it's it, she really becomes part of his story, and he has to work through his issues with her as his girlfriend. They fight. There's some jealousy. She he brings her to parties. There is a way that this film could have been so condescending and so maladaptive and so cruel, and it never, ever goes there.
2: I think Ryan Gosling talking about uh, why he wanted to do the project underlines why this movie is so special.
0: I think that the script and Nancy as a writer, I think it's kind of a radical movie in the sense that it has like the guts to be nice and to wear its heart on its sleeve and to be totally exposed.
4: I was reading on a review from Roger Ebert who said, you know, its weapon is absolute sincerity. It has a kind of purity to it. And I think that that's an important thing if you're going to have a film about sort of an undiagnosed mental illness.
2: The thing that I believe you keep waiting for, the expectation is that something bad is going to happen to Bianca and it's going to break the Ryan Gosling character. It's going to break Lars. And that never happens. And he's the one who comes to his own realization at the end of what what works best for him and a scene that is frankly heartbreaking and wonderful. And I was crying.
4: It's, it's, I cried yeah. I cried in 2007. I cried in 2020.
2: <laughs> Again, this is a movie that you're either going to absolutely love, totally hate. I think critics were kind of on the same fence. Some people found it like way too whimsical, way too twee. Mm-hmm. I think it rides the right side of that because nothing, mm-hmm. nothing bad does happen. It's more of a character yeah. exploration.
3: Nancy Oliver says that when she wrote it, it was very much... She was like, I want to write a fantasy where everyone does the right thing. Mm. Everyone treats each other decently and does the correct thing. Kindness
4: is a fantasy. Yes,
3: which is Very upsetting. Especially, and yeah, she said that especially she wanted to do it surrounding mental health. Like everyone treats you the right way that you should. But it it is interesting because in development, you do hear that there was was a scene where he got mocked Mm. that they shot. And uh, the interesting thing is the director, Craig Gillespie, says that every scene that did go too far just couldn't work Mm -hmm. and he has it's also interesting i i kind of fascinated to know what the real script the like shooting script was like nancy oliver is also like uh she's i assume relatively sex positive because she was involved in one of the only erotic mainstream video games ever produced (laughs) called uh rihanna rouge uh it was a porn star produced her own video game but it was distributed through konami it's the only uh and it's That's very amazing. feminist it's very forward thinking it's mm-hmm. kind of a a woman tries to stop a rape and gets killed maybe but then she gets transported to like a heavy metal universe where she's like a a uh uh you know a, a dominatrix kind of wow. <laughs> uh, navigating evil kings and stuff <laughs> um But uh, it's kind of famous just because there weren't many adults-only video games. But uh, I think that she was interested in the sexual aspect. uh, And Craig Gillespie, yeah, says that they did remove some of that. And there's a few leftover scenes. There's a scene where uh, Ryan Gosling gets in the tub with Bianca. But even that, he's like, it just can't. Like, for some reason, they just stuck out like a sore thumb. Everything that went slightly dark or or slightly, you know, more real out of this kind of fantasy bubble just didn't work.
4: I think part of it, too, is that they do such a good job of making Bianca real to the audience and a character. And and the doll itself had, I believe, nine different faces, um, which essentially were acted as like different kinds of makeup. So she starts sort of as a sex doll where she's wearing heavy makeup. And as she morphs throughout the film, you see her more vulnerable and, and kind of eventually she... Bianca gets sick which is how the film is resolved and they did such a good job of making the audience really see like she and her body language too you can position the doll in a different way to you know posturing which gives a different sense of you know this character and Becky you're the one who told me that she um, I think I read about this too but they on set they treated her as though she was an actress she had a trailer she was dressed privately she wasn't it wasn't like in between takes they're stripping her off and putting the (laughs) next costume on she was treated with dignity in a way that you know, I mean, I love in the film at one point, Um, he's not being very nice to her. He's like really jealous because she got voted onto the uh, school board. Yeah. She's, <laughs> and she's he, too busy she, for him. She, yeah, and he's just like, what is, and then you see them yelling in a car and one of the um townspeople who's kind of helping her, uh, she just like points her finger at him and he's like, she's like, I don't like your tone. She has her own life. And I was just like, this, how did this film do this? <laughs> yeah. this I was mad too at how he treated her. I was just like, you know, because she's treated, she's, she's um, characterized early in the film as sort of challenged and has possibly a disability. And it, the fact is she's a sex doll, but that would explain why she doesn't walk. And, and the thing is, you know, she gets her own life and her own friends and she gets a job at the mall. Literally, she gets a job at the mall selling clothing and like, I'm happy for her. <laughs> So yeah. Well, there's also
2: press junkets where they would actually, uh, Ryan Gosling and Bianca would go to the junkets together and he would oh, speak to her and then God. would pause as if she was responding to the question as well and then would respond to what she just said. So there's a whole thing going on here. We should actually probably talk about Ryan Gosling and his commitment yeah. to character. Uh, sure. he, he lived on set. I believe yes. that. Yeah,
3: yeah, it was no he heat,
4: did, basically. Spent in a like a week.
3: I, I don't think he did the whole time, but it sounds like he lived quite a bit. And I, I also love the fact that uh, he... It, this is one of the times that, you know, we all know the famous story of him showing up for the Lovely Bones, uh, having gained a lot of weight and a weird mustache and immediately being 60 fired. 60
2: pounds. He gained yeah. 60 pounds without being he asked. He just
3: drank ice cream. And he admits that he was losing his mind at that point. And <laughs> that was crazy. But this, he did the same thing. They they asked him to do nothing. And he showed up on set with a crazy mustache and had gained weight. But luckily in this time, Craig Gillespie's like, damn that uh that really works that uh works a lot and it makes you just more like cuddly and lovable
4: and I know this. The studio was really frustrated because they were mm. like, "He was he was a heartthrob." I mean, come on. Well, the Frank notebook, Gosling. right? It was the notebook. Yeah, he he was, was off the, notebook. the yeah.
3: notebook. Was his most famous thing. And the they time.
4: really wanted him to lose the mustache. They were like, "Okay, we understand why he gained twenty or thirty pounds. I guess he's still like such an attractive man in this film." Yeah. Um. But the he was he like put his foot down. He's like the mustache <laughs> is a is a milestone of this character, and and I mean it's true. Like I. The mustache works so well, as does the off brand vintage Patagonia puffer jacket, (laughs) which is now very fashionable. Great sweaters
3: throughout as well. Everybody's got a good sweater on.
4: Yeah.
2: Uh, The other thing I think I really love about this, bringing into the the reality, is that it's one of the first portrayals of families reacting to mental health Mm -hmm. that I think Mm -hmm. I've seen. So, for example, the brother, his first reaction, as Alicia pointed out um, when we were talking earlier, was, uh, how do I pay for this? Because American medical system. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is this sense of shame of what are people going to think? How do we protect him and how do we protect ourselves if he's having this breakdown? Um, That's very accurate. And one of the main reasons why people, two of the main reasons why people don't get help uh, addressed yeah. in that way. There's yeah. a
4: part where he actually, the brother types in, it's 2007, so he types uh, into ask.com, mental illness. and <laughs> Just starts like looking at the links and his eyes just go super wide. And it's true, like this is 13 years ago. We've hopefully come a long way with how we treat mental illness, but uh, it was a lot more grim in 2007. Like we, we we're exponentially oh, yeah. having to pick up on all the time we've wasted stigmatizing mental illness.
3: Yeah. And I think there's a very good, like my favorite, maybe my favorite moment in the whole movie, though. There's a lot of good moments. I think Patricia Clarkson is so good as the doctor because she's just kind of so straightforward, but there's a great part where she's fighting with Paul Schneider, who also is amazing. Like everybody, you Mm -hmm. know, they wanted Emily Mortimer from the start and you're like, yeah, this is Emily Mortimer, what she's good at. But there's Mm -hmm. a part where uh, Paul Schneider, they're arguing about essentially Patricia Clarkson says, everyone needs to treat Bianca like she's real. And uh, Paul Schneider is like, we can't do that. They're all going to laugh at him. And she goes, and you, <laughs> which is like <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: so good because she's line. just
3: saying she's like getting to the point of it that, yeah, so much of uh, people's reluctance to deal with their family members who have mental illness is that they're embarrassed for themselves. They don't a They don't of, want people yeah. to talk about them.
4: A lot of this is about the brother, you know, their their parents. So there's a bit of an age difference between the two brothers mm-hmm. and um You know, the mother died while Lars was very young and he was left with his grieving father while Paul Schneider's character went off to college.
3: The mother died in childbirth. Oh, you're right. My God.
4: And so that's why Lars is having this mental crisis in a lot of ways, because his sister-in-law is pregnant and he's equated that pregnancy equals death, Mm -hmm. um, childbirth equals death, and it's his fault. And so you... It's a it's a nice I've forgotten about that. Thank you, Cam. Yeah. So he's really having some struggles, but um, it's a lot of the brother confronting, you know, how he's never really repaired that relationship with his brother. He he has to apologize, saying, like, I left you with a mentally ill man and I went off and lived my life and got married, and I'm happy, and you live in the garage. Like he literally lives in the garage because they live in their parents' former house and they built him an apartment in the garage. And it's just it's uh everyone has to confront their own ideas of what mental health is in the in the film not just Lars but even like the townspeople
3: yeah and and so much of Paul Schneider's thing is he's they have found a detente where like he like he's likes Lars living in the garage and being a kind of weird guy and not Mm -hmm. dealing with it and that's kind of why they were so interested in Emily Mortimer for the character because she doesn't have a huge arc but her whole (laughs) thing is just she is the one who's like I I can't stand your brother living in the garage anymore I must get him to come to breakfast (laughs) she literally uh, tackles him
4: at one point which I love pregnant pregnant tackles him in the snow yeah um I, I don't know. I I I also think a lot about the film Harvey from 1950, mm. which if you haven't seen Harvey, it's a pretty famous classic film. It stars Jimmy Stewart as someone who has an imaginary, I believe he's a nine-foot rabbit. He's a functional that alcoholic, is, but they don't actually say that, do they? That's true. Okay. Yeah, he drinks a lot. Well, I mean, the rabbit's an alcoholic, I think. <laughs> And then he's just, Sir. Harvey's just keeping him company yeah. at the bar is my understanding of that mm. situation. Um, and I, I love Harvey. It's I would really recommend it, but it's, you know, his family has a lot of shame and, is, and if we're talking about mental health. Let me tell you, mental health in 1950 was that those two words didn't even <laughs> yeah. go together. That was not that was no. not two words put in the same sentence.
3: Just crazy.
4: Yeah. I see a lot of Harvey in uh, Lars and the Real Girl. And I also see a lot of like Preston Sturgis, like the absurdity and the, mm. but the sincerity and the, the, the tolerance is all there.
3: Yeah, I think also if you like movies like this, an interesting thing to look for, it doesn't always come up, but there's this weird uh, award called the Humanitas Prize, uh, which is for art that depicts humanity in a meaningful way. Uh, and Lars and the Real Girl won it alongside uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, <laughs> which oh, is yeah. kind of an interesting yeah. dual match. But if you like these movies that kind of explore the aspects of, like you say, and I think it quite often involves religion and, and, and loving one another. But yeah, the, uh, always look up what won the Humanitas Prize. <laughs> it's kind of an unusual thing.
2: Unusual is certainly the word to describe the two romances in the movies we just talked about and possibly in the two next movies we're going to talk about after the break. So when we come back, did you know that chipmunks don't have eyebrows? It's why you never know what they're thinking. So they had to be added onto a CGI chipmunk character in one of the movies we're going to be talking about. That's coming up after the break. In the A Year in Film series, we know that the historical context in which movies are made matters. And you can't argue that one of the biggest influences into North American culture, be it from the lives it affected and cut short to the fictional movies made about their reign of terror, is Charles Manson and the Manson family. Now, if you're like me and you are, number one, a nerd for true crime, and number two, fascinated by how a group of individuals could affect culture so deeply, check out the definitive six-part docuseries Helter Skelter, An American Myth. And Hollywood Suite is the only place you're going to be able to catch it in Canada. Part 1 airs February 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and every Thursday until the season finale on March 18th. And the episodes drop on demand the day after the premiere. So if you're listening to this podcast in the future, the whole series may just be available to binge right now. That's Helter Skelter, an American myth, starting February 11th to give new context to the way you watch movies. (laughs) you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host. When I say the words Disney princess, what pops up for you? A protagonist innocent in the ways of the world as evil outside forces conspire against them? Women with giant eyes singing to animals? A wholesome happily ever after? People love these movies, and they create their own artistic interpretations of Disney princesses all the time as things like zodiac signs or posing for mug shots, which is very weird and a little disturbing. Um, but our obsession with all things royalty doesn't stop at Disney. 2007 saw an event that rocked the tabloids. I'm talking rocked. Prince William and Kate Middleton broke up for a whole three months, guys. Who cares? Genuinely, who cares? But why do we care about this so much?
3: Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a. To me, I guess I think it's always a dream—the dream of uh, being swept up into the royalty somehow. It, it's just fairy tale stuff. Probably, I don't know, you want my cynical take? It's probably like uh, people come up with this to make capitalism seem fine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that, that we'll always think that there's a chance to escape the constant grind of uh, work. And, uh, you know, probably back in the day, being a serf, maybe some prince will love you. Um But yeah, I remember
2: being a kid that they were like really trying to push William as the heartthrob. He was in all the teen magazines. He was in Tiger Beat. He had those spreads. He was one of the people who made those like little like page boy caps worn backwards at the Canadian Olympics, like a big thing. They were trying to make him a fashion icon.
3: Yeah, I also think, I mean, Harry was just too much of a screw up, even as a young man. (laughs) They were afraid (laughs) of Harry.
2: But Kate Middleton really was this like this like plucked from obscurity, even though her parents were multimillionaires and she. Mm -hmm. Had a stunning education, um, and she's going to live this dream. And they did the same thing to Diana. And there's this whole narrative of uh, you too could be plucked from obscurity, and now you're a princess for sure. whatever that means.
3: Yeah, I know uh, Grace Kelly. You know they're have- all they're all out there.
4: So much disdain for for the royal family.
3: Well, I think we're all also past our sell-by date when it comes to royal people marrying us. Yeah, I guess so.
2: (laughs) You'd think by like 2007, because a lot of people grew up with these, this Disney concept of what being a princess was, that they were going to like swoop in and take care of you and everything was going to be okay. If you're going to subvert that, how do you go about that? Um, do you do a gender swap on the main character? Do you add a swashbuckling cross-dressing pirate? Uh, how about a rapidly decaying Michelle Pfeiffer? Because uh, 2007 saw the release of a movie that could have easily fit into the Disney storytelling tradition, but it was Based on like a way darker story by everyone's favorite goth uncle, Neil Gaiman. The adaptation loses some of the original story's darkness. It was a graphic novel and then it was a novel novel. And the messaging was about the pursuit of beauty and immortality and the dangers within that. And it ends in a very different way than the movie does. Um, But the movie makes up for that in looking at partner compatibility, coming into your own. This is another movie that I genuinely love and have no idea why more people don't know about. Uh, I think 2007 actually might be my favorite year for all the movies that we've done. Um, but I want to know how this movie got made at the budget it did with this cast. This thing is wild.
3: Yeah. Uh, Stardust. a Very unusual, high-budget fantasy film. I mean, to be honest, we'll go through it probably time and time again in a year in film. Just about every time a fantasy movie gets made, it's unusual. <laughs> fantasy is a genre that when it hits, it's huge. But it's shocking that even something as big as Lord of the Rings did not really create a boom in fantasy films. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are afraid because you invest a hell of a lot of money and so many of them flop. Uh, I don't know that this one really counts as a flop. It's kind of on the bubble. It did not make the money they probably wished it would. But, it didn't uh, get
2: the sequel. They wanted to do a sequel. That's uh, okay. why they left it yeah. the way that they did. But it did not get the sequel. Yeah.
3: So, but I think it's like well liked, and it made fine money. And and it is also, I think, it's like uh, incredibly British in a way that may turn off certain North American viewers. You know, it happens. Uh, we are all Anglophiles in this podcast, but uh, many people are not as into it. Yeah, it's a film partially, I think, why it was able to be made at the budget and the size of what it is is partially because Neil Gaiman was heavily involved. It was uh, originally the rice were with Miramax. Uh, he eventually, uh, learned to not trust that, and uh, <laughs> waited for them to lapse and then guarded them like a maniac mm-hmm. uh, and wouldn't let anyone near, uh, but, uh, young, uh, upstart filmmaker, Matthew Vaughn, uh, who actually is a very rare case of somebody who started off as a producer and then became a director. That's a good point. Uh, he, he was, uh, Guy Ritchie's producer, so he was responsible for a lot of incredibly low-budget huge hits. So, you know, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, a lot of those movies Matthew Vaughn was involved in, and he had a massive hit uh, with his first film, Layer Cake, uh, which a lot of people remember as kind of the first Mm -hmm. big Daniel Craig film. Um, But he wanted to be a writer-director and he was interested in finding a project. He, he, much like Neil Gaiman, I think is a very specific guy. Uh, you see him uh, <laughs> gladly turn his fingers up to things and walk away. <laughs> uh, he left right before this film. He left uh, X-Men The Last Stand, uh, the third X-Men film, partially because they were pushing him to make it too quickly. And he didn't think he could make it to the quality he wanted to make it. Um, so he bailed, uh, he, he says, uh, family reasons if you look it up, but, uh, (laughs) there's a lot, there's a heavy implication that, uh, he also is like, oh, this is going to be bad. (laughs) So he left. Um, so he was looking for a project to make that would be important and interesting. He really loved the book. He kind of wasn't sure he knew how to crack it, but he was friends with Neil Gaiman. It sounds like they, they had a personal relationship. So Neil Gaiman trusted him. Uh, He trusted them. Neil Gaiman set him up with his friend Jane Goldman, uh, partially because Matthew Vaughn was concerned he wouldn't be able to figure out the romance angles. Mm. Sounds like a lot of the changes, I haven't read the book, but from what you tell me, a lot of the changes actually are to the romance angles and a lot of kind of the interesting stuff that's added is probably there. And he and Jane Goldman have gone on to uh, be collaborators for almost the rest of his entire career. Yeah, it's a very kind of significant thing. So all these people coming together and basically Matthew Vaughn being this trusted guy that everyone was kind of after because they know he's pretty good and pretty money-making and uh, uh, he knows how to put together a big movie. You, like, from here on out, it's all X-Men movies and Kingsman kick-ass. He, he's a guy who mostly does these kind of extravaganzas, I think that that's why people were confident to give it such a huge budget. And the actors, honestly, he, he went after huge actors, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Robert De Niro. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a stacked cast. Every Pretty much everyone from those Guy Ritchie films uh, shows up in a short role, usually mm-hmm. to get murdered. Uh, but yeah, it's a, a very interesting cast. So I think you can see how from the outside, people would be like, oh, this is going to make a kabillion dollars.
2: Uh, I want to take us just quickly into uh, Neil Gaiman and his adaptations, because um, he's just such a fascinating individual, and he's one of those guys, like Stephen King and, of course, like Whitley Strieber where like as soon as his stuff ca- started coming out, people were like, we need to make these into movies. Mm. Now, the problem with Neil Gaiman is that a lot of his stuff would be incredibly expensive to adapt, if not almost impossible. They've been trying to make a Sandman movie or TV show or whatever since the graphic novels came it's out. It's on
3: its way, finally, apparently. They're shooting it. S-
2: so so you say, Kim. <laughs>
3: No, it's literally big shot. I know somebody editing it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like Don Quixote, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. trying to make it's trying to make that same thing. It's a tilting at windmills. But like this went back all the way to Neverwhere because Neverwhere he mm-hmm. gave it to the BBC. He wrote the treatment for it and gave it to the BBC, and then the BBC made their like total cock up. I'm going to use the British term of that story, and he hated it so much he then wrote a novel to show what yeah. it should be. So the novel weirdly came after the TV show adaptation.
3: Still a pretty good show, I'll say. I, I don't. I don't mind it.
2: <laughs> no, it's it is one of my favorite books of his. Yeah. Like it's it's very again, very dark because it's Neil Gaiman. But with Stardust, did like he still had it in his head that like you needed to tell stories in their entirety, and it was tough for him to figure out what to cut. Mm-hmm. And so Stardust was turned into a radio play first that was ten and a half hours long. And he was like, oh, if you're making a feature of this, obviously some stuff's got to come out. (laughs) And by the time the film was uh, ready to come out, Neil Gaiman, on the promotional trail at San Diego Comic-Con, was making statements that he felt like the story had kind of found the right place it needed to be in for the movie.
0: If you've read the book, you're definitely going to feel very, very at home in the film. There is stuff that is going to surprise you, There is stuff that we simply couldn't do in the way we did it in the book. If we did it in the way we did it in the book, the hero would not be born until you are half an hour into the film.
3: This would be a problem, especially in today's fast-moving world. And, And I will say... The movie is even like five movies mm-hmm. in one movie. I would not fault somebody being like there is too much going on. It absolutely <laughs> could be streamlined. I, I
4: really yeah. liked it, but one of my notes was this needs trimming. Like, yeah. but it, it's still excellent.
3: Yeah, and every performance is so fun. You kind of don't mind, uh, you know, going back to Ricky Gervais as the weird guy, or you know, yeah. I, I, for instance, I think that they, they the role that Michelle Pfeiffer has is v- very small in the novel. But uh, they made her a kind of a through character throughout and she's great. Oh, she's
4: the best in this.
3: She's like the yeah, best part of the So film. good.
2: If you like Kingsman in the Secret Circle, this is going to be your yeah your way to get in because it is again like a bunch of different warring campaigns going against one central unit and so it's got it's got that same kind of mystique to it I guess so the premise of this film is that there's this like British world where there's two uh, sides of this wall Uh, there's the town in like the world we live in and then there's the town in like this magical world where like there's sky pirates and witches and magic is real it's just
3: all fantasy stuff (laughs) it's
2: very Neil Gaiman in his like if you cross this border now you're in a different realm and like Mm -hmm. 90% of his novels are about that that, right. Yeah. And so a yeah. So the, the shooting star falls. The shooting star ends up being a woman. There's a um a young man who's like our Disney princess style character who mm-hmm. believes he's in love with this other woman played by a very young Sienna from, Miller from Layer Cake. Right.
3: Yeah. yeah also made, yeah. made her debut in Layer Cake.
2: Um, and he thinks that she's his true love and he or he thinks she's his true love and he's meant to impress her. And he says to her, I'm going to go get this star and I'm going to bring it back to you. And that will be the proof of my true love because otherwise she's going to get engaged to somebody else. Uh, and that starts his adventure.
3: And we all know that that's uh, bullshit. <laughs> she, <laughs> she has no interest in him whatsoever. God, she, he could bring her back a star and she probably will Isn't her
4: fiance Henry Cavill in one of his early yeah. young
3: Henry Cavill, too. Yeah. Matthew Vaughn actually has a very interesting track record of breaking young actors out, especially British actors. He, uh, like, I mean, I, th- I think X-Men First Class is a big leap for Michael Fassbender, Daniel Craig, like we said, Taron Egerton uh, came out of the Kingsman movies. And here it's Charlie Cox, who people probably know best as Daredevil. But uh, yeah, you know, that's that's still, he's somebody. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, he's got a Tumblr, uh, you know, people like him.
2: I think the thing I love best about this movie, and I do, I love this movie, um, is that Matthew Vaughn wanted to make Princess Bride meets Midnight Run. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's exactly what he made. And it falls into the genre of family movie that we don't really have anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, you think about like E.T., like, E.T. would be like a family movie where there's stuff in it for kind of everybody, as yeah. opposed to being like, oh, there's dirty jokes for the parents, but 90% of this is for the kids. Uh, if the kids get the jokes, it's not our fault. That's kind of what this, this falls into that, like, really, your kids are going to be like a little bit freaked out by oh, the witches. This is but is dark. Like there's, yeah. Yeah. But there's but if they're again if they're getting like the bigger the bigger concepts of like immortality and stuff like it's just cartoony enough that yes.
4: I think you could get away I agree. with it. I mean ET e. T. was dark. Like we we grew up with yeah, dark oh, sure. family films and I think this is part of that tradition.
3: Yeah, and I do feel like as much as there is some violence and kind of weird stuff, no especially your main characters never feel horribly in Jeopardy, no. um, you know, even as much as it's about trying to cut out Claire Danes' heart, yeah. uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> Everybody is. <laughs> she, she does pretty good by herself. Um, well, and that yeah. there's
2: a series of brothers that are trying to kill each other in order to win the throne. Uh, with their father is played by Peter O'Toole, another amazing mm-hmm. British actor. And every single one of the brothers, this is, this is, I think, so clever and so brilliant, is that you see all of the different dead uh, brothers, and they look like what killed them. So the yeah. one that got pushed off a tower has like his hair streaming off the back, and his face is all smushed in the side. But it's not bloody. Again, it's very cartoony. But that that panel is just full of British character actors. Mark Heap oh, is yeah. there, who's one of my favorites. I and they keep cutting to him for his reaction shots because his
4: reactions are so good. Rupert Everett isn't Rupert Everett one of them as well?
3: Yeah, Rupert Everett is one of the first ones we see. Die. I think that was one of my favorite
4: uh, things in the film is this like rogues gallery of ghosts that are all yeah. like. <laughs> It's sort of the interlocutors of the film. Mm-hmm. It reminded me a lot of, like, the Haunted Mansion ride at Disneyland. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah it's and much and the they town. know
3: what's going on. They're, like, kind of your only audience surrogate because yes. they, they know the whole thing because, I mean, there's all so many twists and turns in the story uh, where it's like, yeah, w- w- even the audience, you're kind of running to catch up and, and you don't know, there's all these strands of plot which I I would get why somebody would say is overwhelming to begin with, but then they do tie very neatly at the end, which I mm-hmm. think is an, another kind of Neil Gaiman thing. You never think that all these plots are actually related till the very end. Goes down to people like Adam Buxton, who's mm-hmm. mostly a radio DJ, who, who is one of the very funny ghosts. Uh, and yeah, it's a it's a very interesting. Thing. One of <laughs> them again,
2: was yeah. One of them was meant to be Noel Fielding, but he was ah. sick and had to pull out the last moment. So like that's the kind of Beautiful. like weirdo fun people they were looking
3: for. Yeah, a lot of Green Wing. The cast of Green yeah, Wing, if yeah. you like that show.
2: And okay, we should also talk about Michelle Pfeiffer because we're going to be talking about her mm-hmm. again later mm-hmm. in uh, the two, year of two thousand seven because she had just come off of a hiatus where she was going to be with her family for I think from two thousand two until two thousand seven is the hiatus. Yeah, she took.
3: White Oleander is really the last kind of big. Film, uh, she has come out because uh, yeah, she's—I mean, she's huge, right? Like she—and right up to then, she's in *I Am Sam*. What lies beneath White Oleander? So it's like a lot of people were like, "Where did she go?" And it's—it a lot of her going away is like you say—it's either family-related. Uh, a lot of it was she fought very hard to make a Catwoman film that never came to fruition. <laughs> A lot of it is this film that also comes out in 2007, which I would vehemently not recommend, <laughs> called uh, I Could Never Be Your Woman, uh, which is Amy Heckling's film. Mm. Uh, it was kind of taken away from her. It's one of those weird ones where it goes back and forth. It's Michelle Pfeiffer. Everything makes you want to see it. And I'm going to say, <laughs> just like, don't, just don't. Uh, <laughs> don't Michelle Pfeiffer is a mother of Sersha Ronan in Sersha Ronan's first film. And she's being romanced by Paul Rudd. And <laughs> you're like uh, that just makes your heart glow but it's not a great movie unfortunately oh. um, but uh, yeah so that movie was delayed forever that's kind of was meant to fill the gap uh, and, and it was unfortunately delayed from 2000 and I think three maybe because I think of I could never be your woman that is a song from 1998 maybe. Yep. Uh, so uh, a movie named after a song that everyone has forgotten about uh, but yeah this year you see her come back with that Hairspray and Stardust and especially in Hairspray and Stardust back to good villain role and that's what i was thinking and
2: she's also ugly on the inside in one and ugly on the outside in the other Mm -hmm. which is really interesting and her being like ugly on the outside i mean for most of her villain roles she's still playing incredibly beautiful people and on this one she's just covered in prosthetics i would forget that i looked
4: like that after a while and i'd be standing talking to somebody and they would have this expression be kind of like and i would be sitting there talking and thinking what's wrong with them are they you know are they upset with me if i said and i would forget that i looked so hideous <laughs> Um, nobody ever really got used to it. Even Matthew would always give me that look, and I would always think he's not happy with what I'm doing, and he was afraid of me.
3: Yeah, I always feel like every time she has a quote-unquote comeback, because she's around pretty much most of the time, but uh, you think of something like uh, like Mother recently, and people are like, hot damn, Michelle Pfeiffer. And again, it's just <laughs> her coming in for 15 minutes to be so evil, and you're like... Uh yeah yeah that's the good stuff
4: it's interesting it's interesting how this film plays with aging and yes. her because I think when actresses of a certain age and you know Michelle Pfeiffer is someone that has outlived what is the typical expiry date for an actress mm-hmm. um, and done so, you know, really well in a way that probably paved a lot of roles for other women who are, you know, over the age of thirty. I love what it yeah. does with because she's she's a crone essentially when the film starts out. Like she's she's ancient. She's like seven hundred years old, and all the prosthetics and the makeup. You're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, she's aged horribly, and then like. You know, she progressively as she, she cuts out the hearts of stars and, and drinks the blood of various people um, becomes younger and younger. And it's such a for me, it was like such a tongue in cheek kind of nod to how we consume these actresses on in roles like this and on film when they've they've been mm-hmm. away for a while and they're over the age of when they would normally be given roles. It's a very classic All About Eve thing as well, right? Like, yes. that's very
2: much going on. Mm. As she uses her power is how she starts to decrepit herself again. Like, that's how she fades into herself.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's on purpose, but Claire Danes has also played her daughter on film mm. in the pr- pretty big To oh, Julian yeah. her 37th birthday. So it's like, it's kind of... Like, I don't think that Matthew Vaughn or anyone was thinking of that. But I think, uh, you know, a, a certain thin slice of uh, Michelle Pfeiffer fans are probably like wow what a reference
2: <laughs> I also want to take just a second to talk about how many boob jokes that I actually think are funny are in this movie because there's a lot uh one of them there's a um a young man who gets transformed <laughs> into from a goat into a young woman and there's like this little popping sound as he gets boobs mm. and he looks down and he's just so excited and he's just like oh hey I got these now and it's not gross and it's not leering it's just like oh I'm someone else and yeah. and I think that was really funny and then there's a moment as uh Michelle Pfeiffer is losing her uh losing some of her her beauty where her boobs sag yeah. in like an almost instant mm. drop and it's so funny. Sorry, Death was,
4: Becomes her.
3: Not unlike uh oh, what, she, what am I thinking of? Oh Death said. Becomes her. Yeah. Yeah. I feel it's like, reversed has the death great boobs it. Game, <laughs> I also that that goat guy is uh, MVP. And I will say when the go- the woman playing the goat man as a woman, it is my real MVP <laughs> of the movie. Because I think she is so funny, can't stop looking at her own yeah. boobs, yeah. even in later scenes. <laughs> Uh, t- trying to not look at nude Claire Danes <laughs> later me, scenes. To me, those elements very are very
4: acting. Monty Python, very Terry Gilliam, which I believe Terry Gilliam sure. um, was, was he not attached to this at one point? Yes, he, yeah, was. he was. Yeah, he was.
3: And he decided to not do it because he'd just done Brothers, Brothers, Brothers Grimm. Grimm. Yeah.
4: yeah. Brother's Grimm was a pretty notorious uh, box office disappointment with a huge budget. Also an
3: ugly witch uh, Monica Bellucci slowly becoming young as well I believe. It's very
4: similar. Yeah. I
2: think that's yeah. also the other reason we don't see a lot of fantasy movies is because they are exhausting. Like you oh, see yeah. these people who are like I just don't want to do it again. There's just so many moving parts. Uh, but I just want to point out in 2007 I think you guys mentioned this in the in the TV series that this was a huge year for like this kind of fantasy blockbuster. So you got uh, the third mm. installment of Pirates you got Har- the fifth installment of Harry Potter. Yet Shrek and The Golden Compass comes out this year too. So mm-hmm. it was not mm-hmm. bereft of these kinds of films.
3: Yeah. And at the same time, you can point to something like The Golden Compass when you're saying, is this a hit or not? And compared to The Golden Compass, this is sure a hell of a hit. No.
2: <laughs> this one also did incredibly well on DVD. Like, because Neil mm. Gaiman also has his own, like, yeah. nerdcore people who really love oh, him. Yeah. I am part of it. Um, and I think that's where people really were watching this and watching it on repeat.
3: And I think to this day, again, I'm not a massive reader of Neil Gaiman, but I think to this day, this is considered one of the better of his adaptations. This
4: and, like, Coraline. Yeah,
3: I think he controls a lot of what is adapted, but it still doesn't quite come out right. Because even something like Mirror Mask, which I think is kind of end-to-end him, it's not a thing that people really love. So I don't think it's really Mm -hmm. capturing the spirit. I think that there's kind of an alchemy that maybe even he can't grasp to his stories translated to the screen. I
2: think there's something, too, because it's just so much world-building, that like, mm. and there's so much yeah. narration that when you really get into it, it's about the world as opposed to the people.
3: Yeah, speaking of narration, a uh, wonderful narration from Ian McKellen Agreed. as a little Lord of the Rings yeah. tip of the hat, yeah. too, I think. I think it's like, here's a familiar thing, you know.
2: It's very, very soothing. Well, this is one of the few times when there's another movie we're going to be talking about next week where it's also adapted from a novel, where they use the narration as, mm. like, the novel's text. I think this works better than that one, but this oh, one yes, I found absolutely. because it is so storybooky that you're like, hey, I'm on board and this and I, I kinda need an introduction to this world
4: because it's all world building and it's very complicated. Yeah. We we haven't talked about Robert De Niro. Let's oh, do yes, this, guys. Sure. I know we're going to <laughs> yeah. but I just feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this character. Um,
2: uh, can I just say before we before we get into the Robert De Niro character, not one interviewer had the balls to ask him why he took this role, um, hmm. and if they if they had, there's a very interesting story about Robert De Niro that I didn't even know until like yesterday when I went down this rabbit hole and his history with um, promoting LGBTQ people. Uh, he won the GLAAD Award for uh, for his contributions in um, 2013 2014, I believe. Mm. Start itself won the GLAAD Award for Outstanding Film this year uh, because he plays an openly gay uh, sky pirate Well, a closeted Mm. gay pirate who then is open in the end. Yes, yes, who's open in the end and prances around with a feather boa and in a full corset
4: and wearing makeup. Mm. And what a what a thing! I read that as queer, but I also read it just as like a a, a dandy pirate. And we have we kind of have tropes for that character, like a a fashionable pirate who's really into lace. But they take it to the next level, which I think is a logical place to go. I was so surprised by this character. Like so, and I really loved it. This was the selling point this and Michelle Pfeiffer as this absolutely evil witch um were the selling points of this film for me, which I really did enjoy,
3: and, and it's worth saying, too, he he partially took the role because he didn't take uh, the Barbosa role in Pirates of the Caribbean yeah, and was right. I was a little jealous because he was like, that was pretty cool in the end, <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> Jeffrey Rush gets a bunch of roles because other people <laughs> turn them yeah, down. Yes,
3: uh, but yeah, I, I think this role is so cute and and it's so subtly well done. He he's very hamming it up and, and really locked in uh he he really is having fun with it which is good because yeah you, he can do mm-hmm. his sleepy de Niro sometimes uh mm-hmm. but yeah he's having a lot of fun and and it, the whole thing is cute because he has his pirate crew led by Dexter Fletcher uh,
4: yes can we can we <laughs> talk about my favorite Dexter Fletcher just very sure. briefly um Dexter Fletcher who's now a very awarded director mm-hmm. he directed did he direct both Rocketman and and the queen. Yeah, thing? he
3: he took over the queen thing from Brian Singer. He says yeah. he okay. he he considers himself like Barely a cleanup hitter it. of that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, well, yeah.
4: he should take credit because that's huge. And then of course Rocket Man. And but he was a child actor who I know from a film that's come up before on this podcast, Bugsy Malone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to see him as an adult, where he still looks like this bug-eyed mm. child, but he's he's a pirate. Uh, he's very, to me, very on brand with like Terry Gilliam, Time Bandits. Air pirates, yeah. um, uh, Baron, M- M- Baron Munchausen. Munchausen. Yeah. Sorry, uh, like that is that is really yeah. the feel of this whole air pirate sequence with De Niro. I think Dexter Fletcher is so pivotal to that. And
3: he's, uh, I think he is. Interestingly, he was in uh, a lot of uh, Guy Ritchie films, and I think he's actually right. pinch hitting, if I'm not mistaken, for Vinnie Jones, who I think mm-hmm. was oh, supposed to be sense. the role. But I think Dexter Fletcher is so much cuter because the whole thing is that the he knew the whole time that De Niro was this guy, but they just liked him and they wanted him to be their captain.
4: Yeah, yeah. The captain has to pretend to be like villainous, and he's going to murder
2: everyone. It's the Dread Pirate Roberts thing, right? Where like the name is passed along. It's this—you have to have that aura of evil around you. But he's just—he's got this on the other side of them. And this is so much about again. This is a movie about coming into your own and learning who you actually are and what you actually want. And he wants to live. He would like to live non closeted and he gets to at the end when he is exposed Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember my mother seeing this in theaters and she called me almost immediately and she was in tears like she was (laughs) genuinely moved by this because she couldn't help but think that she was sitting there watching a movie where people were cheering a character who was cross-dressing and they loved him and were genuinely concerned he was going to be hurt and she could Mm -hmm. not think of another time where that ever could have happened and it was just such a sign of progress for her she was so joyous so I was like I get him out which is why this got nominated for the glad award because it's like it's a beautiful it's a very sensitive betrayal and cam to your point with the hamming mm-hmm. um i think it's both robert de niro having fun and the character having yeah. fun like he's just so overjoyed he has people to play with. yeah
3: yeah the whole thing is that he he has this beautiful closet of clothes that he never gets to use and he, he just touches yeah <laughs> he just like collects them and uh, he finally gets to dress up people like dolls <laughs>
4: Yeah, Claire, Claire Danes gets to get dressed mm. up by Robert De Niro, uh, which is a very adorable sequence. And he teaches them how to dance and how to
2: fence, and like he's very much the yeah. mentor mm. character. Yeah. Um, but just quickly, something I didn't know about De Niro was that his father was an artist who, in his later life, was openly gay but was forced to live closeted for a large mm-hmm. part of his life. Um, there's actually a documentary about this, and a lot of his, uh, his father's mental health issues um, are attributed to the fact that he was forced mm-hmm. to live closeted. Um, and that De Niro, when he was founding Tribeca one of the founding principles of Tribeca is that it has,
4: um it gives uh, awareness to LGBTQ projects, that it makes sure there's a platform so lovely. for that. I know his mother was, I believe his mother was also a painter, because when I I went out to the Peggy Guggenheim uh, Museum in Venice, they had, actually, they have a lot of his father's paintings and his mother's paintings yeah. in the collection, which I remember, you know, there was a little, like, didactic plaque explaining that these are Robert De Niro's parents, and I was just, like, that, that is, was unknown to me entirely.
2: Well, we're talking about uh, absolutely beautiful costumes here. We've talked about uh, the amazing closet full of things that Robert De Niro has. And I got to ask you guys, have you guys seen Wreck-It Ralph 2 from 2018?
3: I have, yes. <laughs>
2: okay, okay. So you know what scene I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There is uh, a scene in this film that I love where uh, Princess Vanellope von Schweetz, who's voiced by the wonderful Sarah Silverman, t- is running away from the bad guys and she ends up in this room full of Disney princesses, uh, like all of them from Snow White to Elsa, Pocahontas is there and she announces that she's a princess as well and then there's this whole hullabaloo about, oh, what makes you a princess too? You know, do you do you have a magic hair? Do you sing with animals? And do people assume, and I quote, this is a line from an actual Disney movie, all your problems are solved because a big, strong man showed up? Uh, Just 18 years before the Disney Princess brand was started, and it was there for young girls. It was the advent of the Disney store. And uh, let's face it, I think a lot of women in general uh, really buy into that without evaluating what the messages actually were in these original animations. I think there's been a big revisitation by Disney of what the purpose of these characters are. But 2007 saw a movie that was kind of their first foray into self-awareness with a script that had been on the hot plate since the 90s in which it was a Disney princess come to life in modern-day Chicago and she was mistaken for a stripper. Uh, That version didn't make it to the big screen, but another version did. How did this movie get made? Let's talk about this one.
3: Uh, Yeah, as you say... uh bill kelly strange screenwriter who really (laughs) only has three credits to his name uh they are blast from the past also 2007's premonition with Sandra Bullock and uh, this script enchanted which it which really got him uh what he was after uh it was a, a hot script it was originally a touchstone film if I remember correctly yeah, um, yeah. and it bounced around a lot to uh, different directors uh, and different screenwriters it actually like he sold the script uh it was pretty much uh, take you know taken away and other people worked on it
2: it sold for a quarter billion dollars oh, yeah, like yeah. there was a bidding war over this script
3: this is a very well liked script uh, and there's just all these different kind of premutations in the development a lot of the kind of directors you would think people like uh, Rob Marshall who of course had the big uh, hit with Chicago the weird thing is that it was originally kind of an R-rated comedy they say it's in the in the vein of Fast Times at Richmond High or American Pie so I think that there's it's hard uh, to picture that yeah it's hard to picture uh, there was uh, apparently at one point they really wanted Weird Al to do the songs in it Uh, which I wish uh, would exist. Uh, Briefly, uh, I don't know if you guys know, but uh, Jerry Bruckheimer was a very big part of the Disney brand for a brief moment uh, Mm -hmm. with stuff like Prince of Persia, National Treasure, uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, The Much Forgotten. So...
4: The Nicolas Cage films, you here. Yeah. The Nicolas Cage <laughs> yeah, Disney Nicholas The brief Nicolas
3: Cage songs of Disney. <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, so mm-hmm. director John Turteltaub, who was involved in those, he had it. Adam Shankman, uh, another kind of musical guy, was involved. But yeah, the, the script bumped around, uh, eventually ended up with Kevin Lima, who is mostly an animation director at Disney. Uh, he actually brought back Bill Kelly <laughs> to work on it again. Uh, but I think by this point, it had become much more of a... Uh, light parody but uh, Kevin Lima really wanted it to be kind of a tribute to Disney uh, Disney history and Disney princesses Uh, so which I
4: think it is yeah
3: they came together yeah I think it's it's light on the parody harder on the we love Disney Mm -hmm, Uh, so yeah by that's kind of 2007 but like what we're talking about as well it's also a real low point I think for Uh, Disney caring about princesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Really, if you count the last of the kind of official Disney princess films to come out was Mulan. Uh, And the next one to come out would be Tangled. And I think even Tangled, as much as it's a fairly Disney princess, it's an action movie, really. The whole thing is like Rapunzel's action-y. So really the next... It takes till uh, The Princess and the Frog. And even that one, not quite the same. Uh, Frozen, not quite the same. So it's kind of in the middle of this shakeup of what people thought of of princesses and a rebrand. And we should say that uh, no official princesses actually come out of this film (laughs) in an No, No. and
2: nor can it, because they had planned to make uh, Giselle, the uh, Amy Adams character, part of the Disney Princess Pantheon, and then they realized they would have to pay likeness rights forever to Amy Adams and her estate,
4: and that was not going to How did they not realize that in the beginning? Because I feel like Disney and copyright is a very yeah, <laughs> solidified... Also, there's also solidified. a fascinating
3: uh, like thread, which I think they are like, Disney nerds would also uh, have a problem that Giselle is not a princess, that in fact Nancy is the princess. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Dina Menzel is the only princess that comes out of this film.
4: Um, It's such an interesting moment in Disney's history and we've talked about on on the podcast kind of where Disney was in in the 1970s when we did British animation. But if you think about 2007 or when this was in production in 2006, by that point Disney had completely pivoted to CGI animation and had kind of let go of their house of classic film animators so when it came time to you know do that the first portion of enchanted is of course uh, traditionally 2D animated hand drawn animation although i do think there's some element of computer assistance in this for sure they had no one to do it In house, what and you know that's changed a little bit today, but it's a sad moment. So they had to go to another animation company, which was James Baxter Animation. James Baxter um, had worked as a character designer in the '90s for Disney, so he designed a lot of the characters in Lion King, and then most significantly, Beauty and the Beast. Which I see a lot of Beauty and the Beast in terms of the animation style in the early portions, where they're in Andalasia, which is the the fictional uh, fairy tale animated town. It's kind of it's it's interesting. It's an interesting style because when I was watching it, I'm like, it is definitely Disney style far removed because mm. we're so not used to seeing classic animation from this era, from, you know, the, the late aughts. I don't know. How did you guys feel about it? Like, how did you feel about the early I agree. Animation? I
3: don't. I, again, it's I my thing that I come back and forth on. I think this is a cute movie. I think it's uh, charming. I do too. Uh, get a kid to watch it. I think it is a, a god awful attempt at parody. If it if it's, thinks it's a parody of anything, it's... BS and that starts with the fact Hmm. that the animation to me I would make it look like Snow White. I would make it look like a mm-hmm. classic. Classic, classic, and, classic. And I think Kevin Lima, he, you can read, he has a very specific vision of a unique kind of animation, which is not what Disney is like. I think he wanted the faces to be a d- bit different to connect with the live action actors. But I think, unfortunately, it just like doesn't work because it doesn't feel like Disney animation at all. Like yeah. You watch something like The Simpsons or Family Guy parody Disney animation and it looks like Disney animation. There's better. a way to make it yeah. look Disney.
4: Well, yeah. I think it's brush strokes. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest thing is what Enchanted looks like to me and this isn't necessarily criticism because it's just how it was historically is when Disney went back and restored for like endless DVD versions or Blu-rays when they went back and like digitally restored and I put that in quotes and I realized they can see it on Zoom you cannot see it listening to me but this is in quotes (laughs) digitally restored (laughs) you know what they would do is just like doing Snow White or doing Pinocchio would be automated and you would get all the hand brush strokes that you would see from these you know, the, the famous old men who animated Disney are gone. They would recolorize a lot of the films and make them kind of like, you know, like Dora the Explorer Purple does not exist in 1937. Mm-hmm. And there it is all of a sudden in Snow White, which was never how Snow White looked. And to me, watching the early portion of Enchanted is like what watching how Disney has bastardized their own animation by making it look too smooth and too clean cut. And it's interesting because Kevin Lima also worked. He was a character animator for Little Mermaid, for Rescuers Down Under, for Oliver and Company. And then he directed Goofy Movie and Tarzan. Yeah,
3: which people like. I I think that the interesting thing, too, is this is coming off of an era which I think just now is being reassessed. uh, An actual interesting era in Disney animation. Stuff like Goofy Movie, uh, stuff like uh, Atlantis. Hercules. Uh, Hercules. Yeah. And I also think stuff like the same year Meet the Robinsons came out, which was kind which of is awesome. Off. Yeah. And I think a lot yeah, of people these are like these are great movies. Uh, but it was Disney trying to find itself and going, eh, no, eh, no. And again, I think it's like it's interesting. You can read a lot of Kevin Lima talking about what he wanted in this animated visual style. But I think what I want and probably what audiences want is – a parody of disney like yes which
4: it's not
2: i want to take us back into like what this was originally tended to be and touchstone and who framed roger rabbit and that sort of feeling because we haven't talked at all about michael eisner and what a controversial figure he is in disney history because he was like the disney renaissance golden boy he gave us little mermaid beauty and the beast like era aladdin that was like that really turned disney around because we talked in the 70s and the 80s about how they were really struggling so he came Mm -hmm. in and like reinvented that whole thing but then he started to stretch a little too far. He was the mm. one who was like,
4: we're having Euro Disney, which yeah. was like a notorious issue. Um, oh, I enjoy, I enjoy a Euro Disney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just going to point that out there. That's the last Disney park sure, of visited. I, I, <laughs> I, I like every
3: time uh, TGIF went to Disneyland, <laughs> all of his uh, vertical <laughs> integration of brands.
2: Totally. Well, he's also the one who started Disney Cruise Lines. Um, and mm. he also started Touchstone, which was meant to be like the adult brand of Disney. So like Splash went through there. And of course, yeah. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is an obvious parallel to I this. I mean,
3: yeah, is a real uh, Enchanted. <laughs>
2: exactly. And Enchanted was bought for this brand. Yeah. So there's a, and he was so, one of the reasons why they were so upset with him by the end of his tenure and they replaced him, Roy Disney notoriously like uh, made all these videos pleading to the Disney board being like, we got to get Eisner out of
0: here. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Roy Disney. In 1923, my Uncle Walt and my father Roy founded the Disney Brothers Studio, which would later become the Walt Disney Company. My dad, my uncle, and those that followed have created an amazing legacy that has touched people around the world for generations. Lately, though, I've become concerned with the direction in which the Disney Company is moving. I believe it's time to take action, and we could use your help. If you're a Disney shareholder, in my view, The best way to help save Disney is to vote no on the re-election of Michael Eisner, George Mitchell, Judith Estrin, and John Bryson. I believe a new day is dawning for the Walt Disney Company, and with your help, we can bring back the magic.
2: And they brought yeah. Bob Iger, Iger on. It was because he was not focusing as much anymore on the actual, like, storytelling. And they mm. were kind of getting lost in that. And then that's when they tried to figure out how to make this again. And that's when I think Enchanted came back on mm. to remind people of what they loved about those classic stories.
4: Yeah. I think this film is less of a parody, like you say, Cam. Yeah. And if you get away from it being a parody, maybe you can enjoy it a bit more. It's sort of um, coming back to our early portion of the episode. It seems to be me... It seems to me to be about mental health. Mm.
3: <laughs> sure.
4: <laughs> Is that weird? No, I, mean, no I, yeah. I see it.
3: Fish out of water. I we should say it's about a princess coming Delusional. to the real world. Uh and an evil queen in chaos. I mean this is a movie that when you read about the references to Disney stuff I'm like this is for this is for the real Disney freak. it's a stretch this is for a, yeah, yeah. this is yeah. for the people that know the name of every character and the name of every animator and, that
2: can yeah. recognize the voice actresses
4: on sight oh, of the God. Disney yeah. princesses because they're all there
3: I'm fascinated <laughs> by that they're in the that. background
4: on soap operas and yeah. stuff like the voice of the little mermaid is is an actress on the television in a very small scene yeah. in a, as acting as a soap opera yeah. actress like it's so niche that it it's, it kind of un does itself in <laughs> But some fascinating,
3: like I love that level of yeah. detail, but it's, it's I do too. like I wish I'd read all those things before I watched it because yeah, no way on earth am I going to recognize all these voice actresses.
4: I do wonder how much of this, I was thinking about something like Wicked because so much of this mm. film takes place in Times Square, so you see a ton of Broadway advertisements. You also see a giant um, advertisement for the film Hairspray, mm. which we're going to talk about later on the
3: podcast. I think it's purposeful advertisements for yeah. movies that the actors in the films are in because you also see Superman Returns, which James Marsden is in. And good point, uh, very
4: good point. I and I think, think about Rent, that.
3: for which is Idina Menzel as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: And you know, the lyricist um, of Wicked does a lot of the songs mm-hmm. for this film, and I, I do think that this is a very particular time in history where, um, and maybe Wicked is one of the first to kind of take. You know, obviously, Wizard of Oz is actually not Disney. It's like one of the only things they have not um, put their fingers on. Although maybe did they did they do Return to Oz? maybe that I think yes. they own it now at um, least yeah anyway you can look it up who's listening but um it really is what are we film experts wicked wicked is definitely what they were trying to go for and did not accomplish mm-hmm. because it doesn't go but far i still enough. i still like it i still i still, yes. still you know what i like about this film is amy adams yeah amy adams who this is kind of early in yeah, her yeah. career like she had done she had broken out and dropped dead gorgeous i believe in 1999 which is a film that I love so much. Junebug was huge for her. Mm-hmm. Um, And I believe made, uh, led to an Academy yep. Award nomination. nomination. And then Talladega Nights. And then she does Enchanted. She was, she, this is the film that made her a household name. She was a cheap get in terms of like salary for this film, but she is so charming. And she sings some of the songs she sings herself. Some she doesn't, mm-hmm. but uh, some are dubbed, but uh, I can, I could just watch her in this forever. I no, don't know. I don't, I don't know. Very good. How much I love this film in terms of a story, but I just think that she's because uh, she, she's in the parody. She film doesn't everyone play else play the in. parody. I think that's no, the whole thing. Yeah. Is
0: it's a
2: hundred percent genuine. The big giant eyes are yeah. all real. She means everything she says. It's I mean it's one of those roles that only an incredibly intelligent person can play.
3: Yes, yes. It's also it's a a, a kind of if I may get boringly theoretical. It's, it's a kind of plot that I enjoy, <laughs> uh, which in literature we would uh, call a, a baroque person. Uh, I, I always point people to wes anderson movies like this it's about somebody mm-hmm. who comes chaotically into a world and you are uh, at first it's about how nothing works with the way they act she's somebody who's who had who's just completely from another planet uh like yeah. the, the, the big kind of broke man is don quixote and the, the plot isn't about her learning to function in the world it's about the world learning why she is correct I think that that's the thing that works so nicely is you have amy Ad- like i think amy adams james Marsden, timothy spall maybe to a slightly lesser extent susan sarandon because she's not given a lot to do uh, yeah. but i think those three characters are so good partially because they it's not about them becoming regular people it's about them being these outsized characters but that somehow working in mm-hmm. this world <laughs>
4: I think that's an excellent point. See, the thing is, I want to love Singer. this film. Yeah. I want to watch it over and over again, but there's just something that holds me I back I mean,
3: I'm, I'm very interested in the sequel for that reason. Like, there's a proposed sequel. It's apparently written. All the songs are ready. They're just trying to get everybody together, and I think it could be very good because it also sounds quite a lot like uh, Into the Woods where this right. is about happily ever after what happens after that uh does that exist which is is kind of what you want you know as much as this plot is fun and great for kids you kind of want to see how the reality of everything would work
2: I think for my pro- my problem is I love the front half of this. I think there's just so much fun mm-hmm. in the front half, especially those rats mm-hmm. and cockroaches and mm-hmm. like her singing to them. That makes me laugh so hard. May I
4: interject and say this is a better singing cockroach scene than cats. Agreed. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> well done. But continue, continue. Um, But I think the back end, the messaging just skews
2: really non progressive in a way that actually makes yeah. me uncomfortable. Um, the idea that like the credit card is for emergency purposes and that moms and daughters shop together and spend <laughs> yeah. exorbitant amounts of money. On On brand names, in which you see the bags and the brand names, that made me— It was
4: Ellie Ellie Tahari was the brand that they're toting (laughs) in, which is an interesting brand for Enchanted to get behind Ellie Tahari. Isn't it,
2: though? But yeah, yeah, that part makes me very uncomfortable, Um, that the divorced couple gets back together, and the idea that you have to focus on the good times instead of the bad was like, oh, that's very dangerous messaging. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so there's just a few things that sit in there that
4: just make me very uncomfortable. I think what you're saying is you kind of wanted this to be more Wreck-It Ralph too I in that it. sequence where the you know where the Disney princesses are being subversive mm-hmm. and and laying bare how. Generations of young girls have been trained by Disney to and and young and, men as yeah. well, and, and um, full-grown children. women still stand by it. I've met a number yeah. of them, and it's like, yeah, nope, nope. And oh, actually, nope. I think I, I was missing that.
3: There's a very good subversion. They kind of try to do the subversion of like true love's kiss and whatever. The whole thing is that she thinks her true love is this prince but actually it's like a much more like hard-worn uh attraction she has between her and Patrick Dempsey but <laughs> to a divorce yeah, lawyer yeah <laughs> to a divorce lawyer who she also has only known for a couple of days yeah.
2: who leaves his girlfriend of 5 years who he's intending to uh, to propose yeah, to yeah i mean
3: it's not great. Uh, it does pretty dirty by Adina Menzel even though she becomes a princess in the end. This concept, unfortunately, was executed so much better in Frozen, where yeah. it's you're trying yeah. to find true love to break the curse, and the true love is between two sisters instead of a man. Uh,
4: I think something like this had. I think I hope Frozen exists because of a film like this. I hope yeah. this was just a stepping stone. I mean, maybe that's a good way to look at Enchanted. Is it is still only 2007, yeah. and that was 13 years ago, and Disney was not quite ready to go full blown. Like, look at how we messed you all like, yeah. I-
3: up. <laughs> And I think, like like we were saying, if you look at the following princess movies, I think all of them, yes. even down to Princess and the Frog, do it. Uh, I love the Do it a lot frog. differently because I mean, it. Princess and the Frog is uh, the princess aspect is is you know not it's not as princessy as it's princessy. Tangled, like I say, is an action movie, and it is also about yeah. not trusting the guy. Like Flynn Rider is a, a jerk, and, and then yeah, <laughs> almost every princess movie since is about not trusting the guy and well, guys being and evil. then picks.
4: Pixar gets injected at a certain point. Like this is pre-Pixar mm-hmm. Disney. So once you get the injection of Pixar, which has always been a little bit more nuanced with how they treat their female characters. If you think about a character like Jesse or Bo in Peep, Toy Peep Story. in Toy Story
2: Four, yeah,
4: great example. Um, you know, I do think that we we can we, Disney is more palatable today because of something like Pixar, yeah. and I hope something like that Enchanted started with us.
3: Probably the difference, especially if we're talking about your favorite, Wreck-It Ralph uh, 2, is uh, the injection of uh, women screenwriters. Uh, Mm -hmm. Pamela Mm -hmm. Ribbon worked uh, a lot on... Uh, Wreck Ralph too. I think it's mostly credited to her. Jennifer Lee worked on Frozen. It's uh, yeah. I think that there is a difference uh, that you see. I don't think any of the screenwriters who came through on Enchanted were a woman. Uh, so yeah, no. maybe there's a maybe there's something there about reexamining princesses.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe this is a film with Adina Menzel. Playing a role, and she's very good in this. And she doesn't sing. I know she was supposed to sing the song that would lead into the end credits, which I really wish they had kept. Instead, they went with like a Carrie Underwood song that I think is pretty milk toast. But yeah, the idea that this is a, a, a Disney. Film with animation and Adina Mazelle is in it and has no song. And to sing. Patrick Dempsey does, which yeah. is kind of wild. Um, yes. I think the other thing for me is I actually don't find any
2: of this music particularly memorable or particularly mm-hmm. no, strong. Not at all. In fact, I not think it's all. very telling. It was nominated for three of its songs for the Academy Awards and won none of them. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's just not particularly. Jazzy, I get, I get, guess I get is the word like, no, let it go.
3: They get stuck in my head when I see it again, but it, yeah. it ends yes. pretty quickly. Like, I think Happy Working song, which is worth yes. look up her Oscar performance of it. Very charming,
0: it's uh, adorable. and that's how
3: you know are both like very catchy songs. But yeah, reading that it might have been Weird Al. Oof, can you imagine? The Weird Al musical? I, yeah, I just I want, want, a different, <laughs> I I want a different
4: film. I want the Weird Al version. I, I want this film to still exist and be a little bit more subversive. Mm-hmm. But then I also want this original version that was like kicking around yeah, in the 90s where script. she was confused as a stripper. I will say that I know a number of burlesque dancers whose days, day jobs are Disney princesses who go to birthday mm-hmm. parties. That is a real thing. Yeah. That's a real thing.
3: There's a... <laughs> that sounds like a great modern <laughs> disney princess gets mistaken for the fake disney princess at a <laughs> kids party um, but yeah i you're yeah i think and i think actually becky what you say that you like the first half more than the second half my gut tells me the first half is more like that original script because uh, that's the cockroaches yeah. flying in and stuff. Uh, there's a lot more and and arguably she's mistaken for a sex worker uh, yes. <laughs> at one point. Yes.
2: All right. Well, I think that is the perfect place to uh, divorce this episode head on out. Uh, we're into some more really fun stuff next episode. I'm so excited for this. This is more. I love 2007, guys. There's so many good movies. Um, so that's all for this week. Uh, I want to thank Cameron Maitland Thank you so much.
3: Uh, Thank you, Becky. More uh, James Marsden, Timothy Spall, Michelle Pfeiffer to go.
4: Thank you very much, Alicia Fletcher. Thank you. Can I give a shout out just uh, to end the episode? Always, always. Uh, I'd like to shout out Rosalie McIntosh, who was Bianca's Wrangler, as well as Carrie Bowen, which was the assistant Bianca Wrangler on (laughs) Lars and the Real Girl. If you are out there, please contact us. I have... questions. (laughs)
2: And we would love to speak with you and possibly high five you once the pandemic is over. (laughs) That would be lovely. I'm in awe. Mm. Yes. You can join us again in two weeks where we're going to look at a movie where Steve Martin, Robin Williams and Tom Hanks were up for a role that ended up going to John Travolta. You know which one I'm talking about. And we're also going to talk about zombies and river monsters. It's going to be a great episode. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time.
0: Could you tell him that justice is waiting for him?
1: He's waiting for you. Okay, Justin.